Paul's journey from the city of Jerusalem, which sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level, down to Caesarea, referred to as actually Caesarea Maritima. Maritima means by the sea, so the city of Caesarea was on the coast. At, at basically, of course, at sea level, so it's quite a drop in elevation that took them about two days to get there by horseback and by foot. It's about 60, 70 miles today if you drive it. It's a very quick drive. But Jerusalem was the most important city to the Jewish world, but Caesarea Maritima was the most important city in that area to the Roman world. Uh, by the time Paul had come into the city, it was one of the largest, if the largest city in the entire region. It had a population over 100,000 people. Uh, it was also the most cosmopolitan, technologically advanced, and economically important city in the entire region. So that Paul, when he went to Jerusalem, he went to pray. But when people went to Caesarea, they went to play. Very, very different destination points. Thoroughly Roman, so thoroughly Roman that the uh, closest friend uh, of the emperor, who was Augustus at the time when Herod built it, said that basically Caesarea was more Roman than Rome itself. So you had these stark contrasts between the two. You had the temple in Jerusalem where people were devoutly committed to keeping the laws of Yahweh. And then you had Caesarea, which was devoutly committed to keeping the laws of Caesar Augustus. Very, very different things, and those things were not necessarily identical, obviously. It would have been covered with idols and images, especially of the emperor himself. It's interesting, if you look at these the, the excavations today, you find that the, the body of the Roman emperor was always the same on every statue. They just replaced it with a different head. And usually the head was made of pure gold. So it made it, you know, notable. But nonetheless, it was this idea that Rome was all-powerful, all-presence, all-controlling. And this course created huge conflicts. In fact, when the war breaks out in 70 AD, the, the first of the Jewish revolts, it started because of a conflict between the Jews living in Caesarea and the Gentiles, which were mostly not Roman but Greek descent. They began to fight amongst themselves, and that became the beginning of the, Ro the revolt by the Jews against the Roman that led to the city's destruction in 70 AD. Well, understandably, as we go on, we find that it was in 22 BC, about 80 years before Paul even gets there, that Herod decided that he would build a Roman city on the coastline, which would be basically where he lived. Herod himself spent most of the time in the palace that he had built in Caesarea, and if you go there today, it's not hard to understand. Beachfront property always, in my mind, trumps mountain property. So basically, it's this beautiful, gorgeous Mediterranean ocean, which is so pristine with its aquamarine color. It's, it's one of the most beautiful bodies of water on the planet and one of the most pleasant to bathe in. And uh, he had built this city, really, there was a small little fishing village there, and he built it into this great metropolitan edifice. And... Uh, it's kind of one of the reasons we ask sometimes, how in the world did Herod get the title of being the great? I mean, we understand that Alexander the Great was called Alexander the Great because he greatly conquered large swaths of, of the world, but Herod never led a conquest against anybody for anything. The Romans wouldn't allow him. He was a client king, so why do we call him Herod the Great? And the answer is because of all of the amazing structures that he was able to build, many which are remaining today. In fact, most of the most prominent and meaningful archaeological sites you see in Jerusalem and around Judea today were built by Herod back in the time before Christ. So here is this man that to the Jews was ruthlessly cruel and a paranoid psychopath. I mean, he, he killed his favorite wife, he still had eight left over, but he killed his favorite wife. He killed two of his sons who were going to be his heirs simply because he thought they were plotting against him. And so, so much so that Caesar Augustus said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his kid. Because, you know, he couldn't eat a pig being Jewish, but he could kill his kids without any problem. And so, as a result, this man who was so fearful of being overtaken explains why he would send his troops to a little town of Bethlehem to find babies under two years of age and have them assassinated, have them murdered, 
because these magi from Babylon came to him and said, the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. That's the whole motivation. He's not going to allow anybody to be a pretender against him. In fact, when he was dying, he gave instructions that they were to arrest the 600 most prominent men in, in the whole Jewish community, and they were to be, at the news of his death, they were all to be executed so that people wouldn't be celebrating his death, but rather mourning the death of the men that he had executed um, you see that he's kind of a twisted personality, uh, had some real issues. But at the same time, he's considered by many to be the greatest of the architects and builders of the ancient world. I mean, we look at things like the pyramids in Giza, and, and, and they're certainly impressive and magnificent building, and yet you can take five of the great pyramids and put them end-to-end -end on the Temple Mount. In other words, the Temple Mount is one of the most magnificent buildings. One stone that, that in that uh, structure is, weighs over 700 tons, and it was put into place. It's, seven, it's 12, 14 feet deep, 70 feet long, a massive piece of stone. And today, people sit there and say, how in the world did they move that piece of stone into this particular place in this structure. It just was a massive construction accomplishment and a very expensive one. So that what we see today, if you talk about the temple in Jerusalem, we have the platform still exists. They built the Dome of the Rock on top of that. Um, there was the mountain fortress of Masada, which most people are familiar with, which is really, I mean, even the parts that kind of stepped down in the end were actually his palace that he built off the edge of it. And it's fascinating when you go there because when you stand on the edge and you look over, it's 1,500 feet straight down. And my wife's always yelling, get away from the edge. I mean, I have this problem. I just have to look over ledges like that. I'd never fall, of course, but... I mean, what's the chances? There was also a city called, a place called Herodium. It was a, a palace built on uh, overlooking the city of Bethlehem in one of the mountains. And it had a lower pleasure park below it. He actually drowned two of his sons in the pool that was there. Um, but also this fortified palace because he built seven of these in his kingdom so that if there was a revolt, he could run to them and he could stay in them and they were virtually impregnable. He also built one called Macarius on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, and this was in the land of Jordan today, but Macarius was where John the Baptist was taken and was executed by his, uh, his son, Herod Antipas. And, uh, but the most impressive of his structures really was the city of Caesarea. You see, Caesarea boasted an extensive water system. I mean, they had fresh water brought in. They had a, a, a sewage system so that people literally sat on toilets and, and, and the waste was washed away without them ever having to deal with it. Um, I think they sent it to Egypt. Um, it had a, they had baths and, and solariums and caldariums and all these kind of things that were so important to the Roman world. A 5,000-seat amphitheater that has been reconstructed. You can see the artist depiction at the bottom there. But, you know, it, it's been reconstructed from its original form. And what's really interesting is as they were removing or, or renovating this, this, uh, this, uh, amph this theater, they found one stone that had a plaque on it, and it was a dedicatory stone to Tiberius, the emperor, by Pontius Pilate. So it's the only place in the world where we have actually the name of Pontius Pilate literally chiseled in stone. I think we have the slide there. I probably jumped out of sequence, so they're really kind of scrambling right now. Anyway, I'll talk about the palace a little bit. This site that he, you see here was where the palace, where Paul was held. This is where the governor ruled. So Paul was not in a prison in the ordinary sense. He was treated very well. And here's an artist depiction next to what this palace looked like in the day. If we can go to the next slide. There we go. You can see this whole extensive uh, area built, around, built out into the water on foundations of concrete. And the Romans had developed, Herod had developed the ability to pour concrete underwater to build foundation stones, which was quite revolutionary. And, uh, of course, below it you see the circular areas, the Hippodrome, which they've uncovered now, where they would have the uh, chariot races. And then on the other side, you can see up above it, is uh, the picture or the depiction of the uh, theater. 
But it's, um, it's quite fascinating because if we go to the next slide, we'll see this, as I said, this stone that says literally to the divine Augusti, which is referring to the emperor, Tiberium. Tiberius was the emperor at that time. And then it has Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So these were, this was a stone that they found uh, buried in the Colosseum uh, uh, or the arena that was there. And it's interesting because <clears throat> when you look at all these structures and these buildings, you realize that this was a kingdom of great wealth, great influence. In fact, Herod was known throughout the Roman Empire as being one of the wealthiest, greatest benefactors. He, in fact, funded the Olympic Games that took place in Corinth during that era. So, interesting fella. But that is where we also get introduced to another personality in the story, a guy by the name of Marcus Antonius Felix just referred to as Felix in the text. His life story is pretty remarkable in many ways as well because he was the son of a conquered Greek king. The Romans conquered the Greeks. He was a son who was taken and sold into slavery. He was, his father had reigned in a place called Cilicia, where Paul was from as well, Tarsus and Cilicia. And that's why the text says when he hears that Paul is from Cilicia, he says, well, I'll hear about your case right away. A personal interest. But he, interestingly, was sold into slavery as a child. He gained his freedom when his brother became the closest friend of the emperor Claudius. And he was able to persuade Claudius, the emperor, to have him appointed as the governor of Judea. He's the only non-nobleman who ever was appointed to a position like that in the history of the Roman Empire. So he's a unique guy. But uh, his, as his political fortunes rose, so did his corruption, cruelty, and lust. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus writes that Felix governed with the power of a king, but the mind of a slave. In other words, he, uh, he abused his power and he exercised incredible levels of cruelty. His whole objective was to serve long enough in Judea and enrich himself so that he could live as a wealthy man, which was the case. Um, he was, wasn't so much interested in delivering justice as he was in acquiring wealth. Thank God we don't have people like that in our government today. Uh, you know where my laptop is? Oh, anyway. <laughs> After coming to Judea, he... He divorced his Roman wife, and he married Drusilla. Who's Drusilla? Well, Drusilla was a granddaughter of Herod the Great. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. You go back to chapter 12 in Acts, Herod Agrippa shows up. He's in the theater that we just looked at in Caesarea, and the people are chanting, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And it says, suddenly, God struck him with worms, and he died. Actually, he died a week later. So God judged him for his impiety, something that's recorded not only in Acts 12, but we read it in the Talmud, we, we read it in the writings of Josephus, all telling the same thing. Something inside of his gut rotted away all of a sudden, and he died rather quickly. Or as the text says in, in Acts, he was eaten by worms. But he died in the same palace where Paul is now being held a prisoner, and Felix is ruling, and Pontius Pilate ruled before him. This is a man who, by all outward appearances, held Paul's life in his hands. And this is, a, I think, an incredibly important point for us to focus on. I share all these, you know, characteristic information with you about these men because we have a tendency to think that Paul and others in the New Testament faced a different kind of hardships, that they dealt with a different kind of injustice, that uh, it was something we know that Paul and others faced repeatedly, but we are so far removed in terms of time and space and circumstances that sometimes we think, well, that was then, but this is now. Now, the problem of perspective that most people have and had throughout history is we only really remember what we've experienced within our lifetimes. If we read ancient histories or even less ancient histories, we may have kind of a, a rough portrait of what it was like, but we don't know what it really feels like. And I mean it in the sense like when people go with us to Israel, I always say to them, one of the differences is that we're not just looking at the Bible, but you're, you're seeing the Bible in the 
climate and in the context on the very ground that the Bible was lived out. So, you know, we always tell people, whatever the weather is, it's biblical weather. So whether it's hot and blistering hot or it's raining and snowing, that's biblical weather. But there's something about the very sense of being in situ, as the archaeologist put it, in situ, in the place in which it happened, that has an impact upon you. And that begins to inform you in many ways that you might not understand. And the disability, I always tell people that before you go to Israel, you end up seeing the Bible as a skeletal figure. But when you go there in the land, suddenly it takes on flesh and form. And you begin to feel it in a very, very different way and see it in all of its complexities. Well, I say all that because what we have to understand is we live in a world that's pretty limited in our cultural experiences. Even as many times as I've been to Israel, there are dynamics of the culture that the Bible was written in that don't completely translate over into my daily experience. And that's true of everybody. But what I want to attempt to do is kind of give us a sense that the world that we're dealing with and the dynamics we're dealing with are not something that are new. This has happened before. It's taken place throughout history, and that's the idea that history has this repetition and this cycle to it, especially when we talk about governments being unjust. That's not a new problem. It may be increasingly new and unfamiliar to you and I today because of what's going on, but the reality is the church has had to deal with that from the very beginning and many times in a much more difficult way. You see, the injustice was clearly on display when we look at the life of Jesus. When he is arrested and drugged before Pilate, who repeatedly and repetitively uh, admitted readily, he said three times in John 18 and 19, I find no basis of a charge against him. I mean, it's easy to overlook it, that he says this three times. And finally, when he looks at Jesus and Pilate says to him, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus' answer left Pilate completely unplussed. He said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Why didn't he? Because the political diamond, the political pressure of the Jewish leaders was so great, and eventually they succeeded in getting Pilate fired, by the way. But he recognized it was so great that he backed down in order to save his career so he was willing to condemn an innocent man. But Jesus put it very simply. He said, you know, um, it's really not you, and you're not going to be able to do this because what's going to happen to me is what the Father has ordained from before the foundations of the world. And I think that's so interesting to me when I consider that statement by Jesus because oftentimes we make the mistake of asking why something is happening instead of asking God, what is it that I'm supposed to derive from what's happening? And that's a hard juncture because there are things that happen in our life that are so unfair and unjust and we really wrestle against it and we fall into that trap. We say, why God? Why God? Why are you letting this happen? And let me tell you, there's no end of whys that will never get answered in this world. There are all sorts of things. Why does one person get uh, disease and die and, and somebody right next to them lives? I often think about it myself. I have friends and peers and colleagues who have passed away rather suddenly and quickly from various diseases. Why am I still here? Now, I'd like to flatter myself in saying, because I'm so holy. But you and I both know that's not really true. So the point is, I mean, I've seen men and women who were, I, I was amazed and even shamed by the depth of their godliness, and the Lord let them be taken from the earth. And then there's some of us who continue on that, uh, you know, the old adage, the good die young. Huh, I hope that's not true. <laughs> but the whole point is that we don't understand the deeper plan. Jesus understood this. He said, I came into the world for this purpose. And God put him in the midst of one of the most criminal and unjust and corrupt political systems of the ancient world to allow him to be ground up, crucified, and spit out that our sins might be paid for. And as we try to get our mind around that, we have to really kind of think about, you know, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I 
need to get past asking all the time when things go poorly, why are you letting this happen? And start saying, God, what is it that you're seeking to accomplish? I came uh, the hard way through a, through a little adage that I've really referred to over and over again through the years. And it, it simply goes like this, that whatever humbles me helps me. And whatever hurts me heals me. Because I found that to be true. There are things I go through and they're really humbling, painfully humbling, and you just realize being humbled is one of the things that God is really into. <laughs> God says in Isaiah 66 too, who is the man that I esteem? In other words, when, when God says I look at the humanity upon the earth and I say, who are those ones that kind of stand out to me? He says, he who is humble, <laughs> who has been broken and trembles at my word. They have such a reverent regard for the word of God that the, the concept of not being obedient to it causes them to be fearful. And so throughout the scriptures, we find that God always looks. He says, behold, I send to you your king in Zechariah 9.9, humble. He says, I'm going to send you the Messiah, but the first marker of his personality is humility. And it's hard for us to understand, but to become you and me is a very humbling thing. Nothing personal, but it's a simple reality for divinity to robe itself in humanity with all of our flaws and failings and our sins and transgressions and body odor. You know, I mean, for God to become that would be even worse than you going to, the, to the, the streets and taking the rags that even the homeless and the, and the drug addict won't wear and putting those on and making that your regular garment. I mean, it's, it's incomprehensible. It kind of goes beyond our grasp, but we have to understand that God oftentimes is so pleased when we are humbled. We hate it. We hate it. <laughs> we think about it for a moment. When do you feel best about yourself? When you've just been humiliated? <laughs> or do you, you feel best about yourself when you fantasize carrying the ball across the goal line and holding one finger up and then spiking it and doing your, your dance, you know, whatever it is? I mean, I, I, I watch this dynamic, I think of myself. You know, every dog has his day, I guess. But the whole point is that we feel best. We're the happiest, the most satisfied when we've just nailed it, when we've just aced it. You know, I've, I feel good coming home every night because when I open the door, my wife looks at me and says, he's home. Well, it's kind of like that. It's more like, here's the list. <laughs> but, you know, and, and you'll see the first five are the ones you forgot to do yesterday. <laughs> you know, but I mean, we, we understand this, right? Hopefully we can understand that, that that's when we really feel good when people are saying, man, I, I love you. I care for you. You're so good. I so appreciate it. You're so wonderful, on and on and on. And when somebody, you know, uh, sends you an email, and I'm, not, I'm just not talking about myself here, I'm sure, and calls you all sorts of interesting names and characterizations, you think to yourself, ouch. I remember one time somebody sent a, uh, a lengthy email, a former pastor he was, according to you, <coughs> didn't want to give his name, which I can understand why. Pretty much uh, talked about what a pathetic human being I am. And... Uh, and when I got done reading, I thought to myself, you know, he may be right. <laughs> it's so much better to sit back and say, you know what, God, we are just your servants. And if anything good comes out of it, it's because of Jesus. And if there's ugly stuff that comes out of us, it's me. And I own that. Everything that humbles you has this place of putting you into that right perspective with God. And so we spend much of our time running away from that, you know. I mean, I think about before I even come here, I stand in front of the mirror and make sure that I've got all the, all the buttons in the right arrangement and, you know, all of those other things. And then I go to my wife and say, do I look okay? Do you see anything? And she said, aside from that great big black hair coming out of your nose, you look great. 
But why do we do stuff like that? We don't want to look bad, do we? <laughs> it's why most of men in my age never go bare-chested. It's a, it's a good reason. <laughs> but at the same time, there's as painful as that can be at times, there's something very powerfully precious in that because it transfers our confidence away from ourselves to God. It's a subtle, subtle thing, you know, because what is the basis of your and my self-esteem? What, why, do, why do we feel good about ourselves? Why, what makes us wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for, for this day and everything you've given me? Is it because I'm so fine in my 409? Or is it because the God of the universe loves me in spite of all the stuff that's screwed up in me? There's a book came out years ago. It said it was talking about this theory of transactional analysis, one of the pop psychological forms. And it, it said, you're okay and I'm okay. And I remember reading the book and thought to myself, you know, okay, I believe you're okay. I'm not sure about me, <laughs> no matter what you say. And some guy, a pastor wrote a follow-up to it. And he called it, you're not okay and I'm not okay, but that's okay with God. And I thought, now there's the truth. I'm okay with God. Because I have been washed by the blood. I've been saved by his grace. That's, that's my righteousness. That's, that's what I need to feel good about. That God has redeemed me. That God has saved me. That God has forgiven me. That the God of the universe loves me, as, as W.E. Vine put it, not because of anything he found in us. <laughs> but he loves us because that is his nature, is to love us. And I began to find my identity in that. Then I began to really understand what the life of holiness is. And sometimes God has to hurt us pretty deeply to get us to that place where we're saying, God, what is it that you're trying to do? And the answer is, I'm trying to heal you. I'm trying to free you from the things that hinder you from knowing the freedom and the peace and the joy of walking with me and living with me. So when we look at the life of Jesus and his crucifixion, we find to our amazement sometimes that God used corrupt men who ran a corrupt system in order to bring about his heavenly plan. And we read similar things about Paul here in this account that before he ever gets to Caesarea, he's been judged by the high priest and a guy by the name of Ananias ben Nebadeus, excuse me, who the historians tell us was a violent, arrogant, gluttonous, thieving, rapacious lecher. He was a rabid enemy of Christianity. He did everything more than any other high priest tried to rid the nation of Christians in the most violent ways. He was the one who had John the apostle, or John the brother of Jesus, who was the elder of the church of Jerusalem, had him murdered. And now he was kill, committed to killing Paul, despite what the Roman commander actually said. He said there are no charges against him that deserve death or imprisonment. And as Paul would later respond to those who came to accuse him, he said, they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. And again, when Felix is replaced later on, just shortly after these events, he even makes the st statement, I found he had done nothing deserving death. And yet, he's not released. And he's not released for one simple reason, the corrupting power of politics that, that controlled the Jewish or the legal system of the day. That's why it says in the verse 27 in our reading, it says, because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now, we live in, in, with a, a kind of multi-layer, complex legal system that we, we pretty much understand that who's ever adjudicating your case can have radically different results based upon their personal worldview or interpretation of the law. That's why we find that people often go through repeated series of appeals and so forth. But it's like we get caught up in the idea that 
that's unfair, it's unjust, it's wrong, it's a violation of my rights. And I'm not saying that that perception is incorrect, but I think that we need to look past the whys and start asking, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that I'm supposed to respond? Because when we look at Paul, we don't see him getting depressed and we don't see him getting angry. And maybe it's just a different of expectation. He didn't expect anything holy or godly or good to come out of a Roman court or even a Jewish court. And that sometimes makes it easier. If you don't expect to be treated fairly, it's easier to deal with not being treated fairly. But at the same time, not getting depressed and not getting angry is a sign of trust and faith in God because you're looking to Him. You see, there are a few things that I see that stood out in Paul's perspective. First of all, he knew that his life was not in the hands of men, but his life was in the hands of God. Remember how he told the Athenians previously in chapter 17, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He governs over everything. It's all under his purview. Despite what men or mankind think, he really runs the universe. He determines the time set for them and the exact places where they should be. For in him we live, we move and have our being. It's similar to what Jesus said in John 19. You can't do anything, Pilate. I don't care how powerful you are. You have no power other than that which God allows you to have. You're nothing more than a tool in the hands of God. And when he's done with you, you'll be done. It's that old adage we often try to remind ourselves is God is still on the throne. Regardless of what the news cycle says, God is still on the throne. That secondly, we are neither the captains of our fate nor captives of our circumstances. But rather, God has a plan, not only for the great big sweep of history, but for the individual circumstances he places you in, the spaces he has you fill. When I talked last week a little bit about my wife and I's lengthy marriage and uh, people wondering, how do you stay married for 52 years? And uh, I think Ruth Graham put it really well when they asked her if she ever considered adultery. And she said, no, but I often contemplated murder. Uh, (laughs) But the reality is that you recognize that I am living my life with this person because that's God's greater plan for our life. And we have this idea that God has a plan for my life. It's always going to be super califragilistic and expedaliocious. But when it becomes conflicted or it becomes stressed, then we say, well, that couldn't be God's will because God wants me to always be happy. And if anybody knew that for sure, it was Job. Yeah. God made Job extremely unhappy Because it was the only way that God could accomplish not only what he wanted to accomplish in Job's life, but what he wanted to use his life to declare to the rest of us. And God asked Job a simple question at the end of his trial. So Job, explain a few things to me. He asked him 67 questions in a row. That's that's like being locked in a room with a five-year-old. I mean, it's like... (laughs) (laughs) And Job can't answer one of them. In fact, Job kind of says, from now on, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) And I'm going to listen because what do I know? How, How do I understand? And at the end of the day, it says God multiplied Job's blessings seven times what they had been before. And we make the mistaken conclusion, well, if you just live through this, then you'll get seven times what you had before. Bring it on. No, that wasn't the point. That may have been the point to us. But God wanted to make it crystal clear that we understood that we don't control our prosperity. And we're not always responsible for our adversity either. The circumstances are ordered by the Lord in ways that oftentimes don't please us or satisfy us, but they are designed by Him for His greater glory. 
Jesus was glorified, how? By his death. And sometimes God will glorify himself through our death or through disease or through disappointments and or through injustices. But the man or woman who goes through life looking for life to be fair doesn't understand how fair is defined in the mind of God. The fact that he didn't fry you as a crisp when you came out of your mother's womb because he knew this was a bad seed is that God wasn't dealing with you in fairness. He was dealing with you in mercy. When I cry out and say, God, I just want justice, you know, I think Haddon sometimes says, are you really sure? <laughs> you want to think about that for a while. If you, if you want to get you what you justly deserve, no, God, I want mercy. <laughs> Let mercy and kindness follow me all the days of the life. When did David say that? After he really blew it really bad. I want mercy, God. I don't want justice. And when people get locked into this idea, well, we want justice, uh, usually it translates emotionally into we want vengeance. And God's made it very clear, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, you have no right for vengeance, no matter how you rationalize it. That's why when God said to Jeremiah, talking to Israel or the Jewish people, and they're being annihilated by the Assyrians, God says, I know the plans I have for you, to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. At that moment, there was no evidence on the horizon that that was true. As every city has been conquered, and they're surrounded by a massive army, where the Rabshaka, the commander of the Assyrian army, says to the king, King Hezekiah, Give me 2,000 men and I'll put a soldier on each one. Or 2,000 horses. Or if I give you 2,000 horses, you wouldn't be able to mount a single one of them. Which was true. And then all of a sudden with that yawning, gaping jaw that was going to consume Jerusalem, suddenly the angel of God wipes out the army of the Assyrians and they're gone, never to return. What happened? God said, well, it's simple. It's not my plan to destroy you at this point. And you just recognize that your hand is in the hands of God, that you rest with him. That's why when he said to Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet. You didn't come to any of those things in and of yourself that from the moment that I allowed that sperm and that egg to fertilize and become you, that moment of conception. He said, there's a reason why I let those two DNA profiles link up together to create what you are this moment. And I think how crazy it is in a day and age where people are doing everything they can surgically to kind of kind of um, defy gravity and, and, and change their looks and they're you know, getting injected with all sorts of things to kind of help them look younger. I thought Chris Helmsworth has a, a new video on National Geographic or movie series on there about how to live longer, all about what you can do to, to extend your longevity. And I saw him jumping off of bridges and I thought, that doesn't seem like part of the formula to me, but anyway... <laughs> But we become obsessed, obsessed with how do we extend the life of this machine, this body. And God said, do you not understand it is nothing but a clay jar? And I can take you through all the archaeological digs all over places like Israel and show you all sorts of pieces of clay jar laying all over the ground. Clay jars were never made to last forever. That's why they... Why the archaeologists get so excited when they find one that's intact. But thirdly, it's that realization that God is in control. When he says in Psalm 33, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. In Proverbs 16.4, he says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends even the wicked for the day of disaster. But fourthly, we need to realize that even when things are bad, we can rest assured that they will end up good. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. Remember that? 
I love the way the Amplified renders it. It says, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good for all who love God and are called according to his design and purposes. So there is a caveat in there that as long as you're fitting into God's design, you're seeking his plan, his will for your life, he says, then you'll see that things, even bad things, will somehow work together to bring about a good result. For those, he goes on in verse 29, say, whom he foreknew, that is, he foreknew them beforehand, he also destined from the beginning. That's not so much the idea some people say, well, we were predestined, we had no choice. No, he says that when he sees that there's a heart that is true to him, he creates a destiny for them. And that destiny becomes the plan of their life that he wants them to fulfill, their purpose for their existence. My wife made a very poignant observation last night as we were sitting by the fire and just talking. I said, you know, I think that if I had a $2 million retirement account, I might not teach as much. <laughs> I might not pastor as much. And she looked at me and said, well, now we know why you never got it. <laughs> Darn it! <laughs> But it's also why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 28, he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. For are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. I mean, that helped me a lot, that just there alone, because we have a lot of bird feeders, and we like to sit there and watch the birds come in and feed, and, and our neighbors have cats, and they like to come in and watch the birds feed and then feed on the birds. And this is the constant conflict. I'm conflicted because I don't want to interfere for nature, but... <laughs> it's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. And I have to sit back and go, okay, God... <laughs> They're your birds, and they're your cats. <laughs> but he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, that's getting easier. But don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You see, Paul was not a man who was blindly making his way through life. He was a man who was on a mission and he knew it was a mission that had been designed by God. God had told him that you are my chosen instrument, but then he said, but I'll show you how much you must suffer. So he expected both. He expected to be used in surgical preciseness or in the wide swaths of a sharpened sword, but sometimes also to suffer the shame and the reproach and the insult and the imprisonments and the beatings he understood that every time something like that happened, this was something that God was allowing for purposes that he may not understand at the moment. And he also knew at this moment that God had said, as we talked about last week, God said, take courage. You must testify of me also in Rome. So Paul knew he wasn't going to die. He wasn't done. He had to go to Rome. And that gave him such a courage and a confidence, a boldness, when I was on a flight one time and the guy next to me started talking about, you know, every nine million miles one of these planes crashes and, and he says, and I've got so many X million miles of flying and so I'm probably the most dangerous man in the world you could be flying with right now. And I looked at him for a minute and said, you know what? I don't believe in statistics. I believe in God. <laughs> and I'm not going to die until God tells me I'm going to die. And so I pray that sometimes the scripture will be fulfilled where the Lord says, lo, I am with you. He never says he's going to be with me high. But my security is in him. So Paul spoke boldly because his faith, fate was not in his own hands or in the hands of a corrupt system or even more corrupt individuals. His fate was in the hands of God just as your and my fate is in God's hands right now. 
So when YouTube notified me that one more transgression and they're going to cancel me. There's a part of me that really, you know that button that says do not touch? There's a part of me that just wants to touch that button. I would just simply say that today as followers of Jesus Christ and we find ourselves surrounded with an increasingly hostile and corrupt world where we have politicians who pontificate to us as they lie, cheat, and steal. As we have bureaucrats who overreach and oppress with their undelegated powers. Where free expression is often muzzled, where rights are often violated, where criminals are set free while law enforcement are treated like they're criminals. Elections are stolen, borders are broken, drugs and violence are rampant, and the science is so swollen with corruption just so that those scientists can increase their own profit and wealth and power. It's really easy for you and I to lose sight of God. And yet, our God says to us, like in Deuteronomy 32, there is no God beside me. As he said to Belshazzar, King Belshazzar of Babylon, who so blasphemed and disrespected the God of Israel. He said, the God who holds your life and all your ways in his hand. The God who has numbered your days. As the psalmist said in Psalm 75, at the set time that I appointed, I will judge with equity. So until then, you and I will do well to remember the words of Paul as he awaited his own unjust, illegal, immoral murder at the hands of Emperor Nero just a few years after this that he wrote in his closing comments to his charge Timothy and said in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and dead in the view of his appearing in the view of his appearing and his kingdom I give you this charge preach the word be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Tell them why their lifestyle and their behavior is sinful in the eyes of God and will reap judgment and destruction. And do that with, with uh, carefulness and patience. He says, because a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine and will cancel you. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Widely held but false beliefs. That's what a myth is. Something is widely believed but is a, just a total myth. It's a total myth that Two men or two women can be married to each other. That's not a marriage. It's a total myth that a man can become a woman or vice versa. It's a total myth. Although it may be widely advertised and held, it's not true. It's a total myth that two people can have consensual sexual relationships outside of the marriage bond because they're so in love. There are so many of these myths that are perpetuated. And he says, don't allow yourself to be turned aside, but rather, he says, keep your head in all situations. Don't get angry. Don't get depressed. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelist. We'll talk about what that involves when we look at Paul's style of evangelism next week. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. But I love this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's the target. I have fought the good fight. I haven't rolled over and acquiesced and went silent or quiet because I was afraid of how that might affect my life, my career, or anything else in my life. I have fought the fight. I'm going to fight the fight till the end. I have, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith.
And then he says, for now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the God, the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. I don't have any righteousness of my own, but he's going to give me a crown that declares that righteousness. And not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. And here's, I think, the trap we get into. We long for his blessing instead of longing for his appearing. So when I read the Bible and I see what happens before he appears, what he says will be the, 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 con- the context of the world, the, the things that are going on, and I do not want to be part of that, and yet I long for what's on the other side of that, his appearing. History has proven that God's servants shine the brightest when the world around them becomes a darkness. And that's why he said in Galatians 6, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. To the Thessalonians he says, never tire of doing what is right. But I loved how the psalmist in Psalm 37 three times David reiterated the same phrase. He says, do not fret. Fret. It's not a word we use much anymore, is it? And yet as I looked at various translations across the board, they all chose the word fret. You, if you look up the English definition of the word fret, it really captures the original language in a wonderful way. It means to be worried, to be anxious, to be distressed, frazzled, worn down by constant rubbing. Sometimes the the culture can constantly rub against us. There are people in our life that constantly rub against us and we get worn down. He says, don't let that happen. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. In verse 7, he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways and when they carry out their wicked schemes. He says, refrain from anger, turn from wrath, do not fret, it only leads to evil. As Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 6, he will make straight paths for your feet. Straight paths, the word straight there means level, upright, just, good, lawful, smooth, Most importantly, he'll give you a path that's agreeable with God and what he wants for your life. But it begins with this central confidence. I am not in control, but God is in control. 